Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verse number 8. Normally I've been preaching from Colossians on Sunday night, but verse 8, it opens up a subject that I really want to spend more time on. So I'm going to spend a few weeks on Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 8. Verse says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. We ask ourselves a very important question. Why, why do scores of young people who attend church throughout their growing up years turn away from God and leave God out of their life once they leave home? Why does that happen? Very important question. And, you know, why are many Christians not sure what they believe about various things? Things like origins or absolutes, morality, abortion, euthanasia, divorce, genders. There's all kinds of issues in our world today that are these worldviews of people, and Christians need to know where we stand on it and why you stand on it and be able to defend that. And yet many Christians are not able to do that. And that's one of the reasons I believe that so many young people turn away from God once they leave home. Now, as we look here at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, we see here that Paul is warning the Colossian people. He says, beware lest any man spoil you. The word spoil means to to take you captive. Remember when they would conquer a city, they would, the conqueror could go in and take whatever he wanted. And he would plunder the city and take all the things from the city that was valuable. And the word is used here describing the activities of those who are stealing away the faith and the strength and the beliefs of people that know the Lord or profess to know the Lord. And he says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophies and vain deceits. You know, the world's philosophies today are corrupt. There's a lot of corrupt philosophies in our world. And when it talks here about vain deceit, the word vain deceit refers to that which is uh, empty deceptions. There's all kinds of deceptions out there that don't have any real merit to it, but yet they seem to be captivating people's minds. And he says, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, the traditions of men, the things that men think, they don't have to have a solid foundation, but that's what people believe. That's what everybody's doing. So therefore, they push it on us. After the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, the rudiments refers to the the base elements, the, the core beliefs, the core thinking, the core philosophies. And so God says that the devil is using these things in people's lives to twist them and to pull them, and to pull them away from that which is right and truth. In order for us to combat this, the solution is that every Christian needs to understand a biblical worldview, and be able to defend it, and be able, most importantly, to teach it to our next generation. Folks, I know that most all of you know the basics of the Bible. But if it came down to the time where somebody pinned you in the corner and says, prove it to me, often Christians say, well, I believe it, but I don't know if I can prove it. And we need to be able to defend ourselves with the scriptures. But, you know, as I pondered this and as I was thinking over this in preparation, I thought, you know, you cannot defend the scriptures 
until you believe the Bible or the scriptures. That's where it's got to start. If you don't believe that there is a God, then the Bible has no value. And so we're going to start at the beginning, and I want us to look at this, and I've put on the back of your bulletin there the chart that I have kind of written up here. (laughs) Didn't do a pretty good job of it, but it gives you an idea. So I want you to look at the chart. If you do not have a bulletin, um, wave your hand, and Sean can get one to you if you don't have one, if you'd like one of those. All right. I don't see any hands, Sean. So if you don't have one, you're welcome to go back and see Sean if you're scared to raise your hand. All right. So be... Uh, we need to understand a biblical worldview. Now, what I've done in this chart here is I've listed for us six un- uh, non-biblical arguments and three biblical arguments for the existence of God. How do you know God exists? If you talk to somebody and say, I don't believe that God exists, prove it to me. How can you do that? How can you debate that? How can you argue your f- defense? Where can you stand? Well, these are some of the things we need to start with in non-biblical uh, ideas before we can look at the the biblical ones. Now, as we dig into this, first of all, I want us to notice, first of all, a little bit of the secular worldview. What are we talking about when we talk about the secular worldview? You know, common common views of unbelievers, you know, there's a lot of different uh, ideas and beliefs of the unbelievers, but one of them would be, you know, maybe it's the religious people. There's a lot of religious people that believe that God exists, but they don't know him personally. They know that they say, yeah, I believe there's a God. I think so. Pretty sure there is. There's a lot of religious people in churches today, this morning, out there in their churches. They believe in God, but they don't know God personally. They don't have a personal relationship with him. And see, there's a huge difference between knowing that there is a God and knowing him personally. In the last couple of weeks, we've talked about witnessing and telling others of Christ. And we talked about the gospel hand. Use this hand. And we talked our way through the gospel hand of how the God loves us and that we're sinners and we're condemned because of our sin and that Jesus Christ died for us and that we need to repent and trust Christ as our Savior and believe on him. And that's the gospel. And if you've never truly done that in your heart, then you don't even have a foundation to stand on. But once you know Christ your Savior, religious people, a lot of religious people believe about God, but they really truly don't know God. But then we find others that are skeptics, and uh, they make uh, room for some sort of higher being out there. They say, yeah, there's probably a higher being out there, but I don't know whether we can know him, and you know, who knows? It's hard to say. And they have these skeptical ideas. Lots of people like that. Then there's some out there, more than we'd like to admit probably, that say, there is no God. Don't tell me that stuff about God. There is no God. God doesn't exist. There is no God. I don't believe any of that stuff. It's rubbish. And they just throw it out. You know, even when I did a little quick search on Wikipedia, Wikipedia came up with this, uh, this comment. It says, no lasting scientific evidence of God's existence has ever been found. So that's just defending the world view of the secular people, those who are unbelievers. They're saying, you can't prove that there is a God. And so if there is no God, then it's all a bunch of rubbish and we don't need it. You know, listen, folks, if there is no God, then we need to pack our bags and leave. Because there's no reason for being here. We're being fools. But if there is a God, then we have a reason for being here, and we have a reason for getting to know him. Secular education, music, and the media all promote these anti-God beliefs, or skeptical beliefs at the best. The secular textbooks in the public schools and 
sadly in a lot of the religious schools as well. They, from the earliest grades, are promoting evolution. That God didn't create things, that it all evolved and got here by chance and promoting the anti-God philosophies of our world. We often hear of university professors that make it their passion to destroy the faith of anybody that comes to their classroom. Embarrassing them, cornering them, making them look like fools for believing that there even is a God. As a result, many young people lose their faith. The television and videos and tech games and secular music all Many of it, much of that curses God, promotes the anti-God thinking, is against God. And so we're bombarded by all this on all these sides. And so you think about it, in, in a typical week of a young person in our society, they are bombarded with all this negative, 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 God doesn't exist, there is no God, there is no, God didn't create, and there's all that's rubbish, and religion is nonsense, and they're bombarded by that. It's no wonder that the young people are struggling to stand up and say, but I still believe it. And sadly, many adults struggle as well. The anti-God secular peer pressure is powerful influence in our society. And the consequences of this, the statistics are sad. According to, and I quote here from the Barna Group, According to statistics from Barna Group, 72% of the young people who attend church in Australia drop out of church life as, as they transition into university and young adulthood. 72%. Perhaps more. But that's what they claim. Children who do learn about God in their home and in their church are facing tremendous pressure from teachers, peers, society, to reject God in the Bible. And to believe that science is right and that humanism is right. And that relativism is right. There are no absolutes. It's all just whatever you think. And that's the pressure we see all around us. And all, this isn't anything new to you. You know that you know as well as I do. These are realities. As Christians, we must establish and flesh out and teach a solid biblical worldview for ourselves and the next generation. Got to. We've got to. Now, let's just take a look at these six non-biblical arguments to defend the faith, defend the existence of God, what we're looking at here this morning. Because God had his existence before the Bible could come into existence, I believe that's where we really need to start. If I just started with the Bible and assuming that God exists, there's going to be some that say, no, but God doesn't even exist, so the Bible doesn't exist. If we were to walk on the beach this afternoon, or maybe first thing in the morning someday, you take a walk on the beach and you see footprints that appear to be footprints of a human being. You can know for sure that there was some kind of a creature that walked on that beach before you got there that had footprints like a human being. 
Now, you couldn't necessarily prove that it was a human being. It could have been some other creature that has a foot like a human, which none that I know of do, but we can't, can't assume that. But we know that some other creature did that. The footprints are evidence. And, you know, as we look at God's world, God's world is covered with footprints of his presence. And we need to see that. And we begin with design. Design. When we think about design, we're talking about, in, in your bulletin there, the, I, I put a, uh, a little, you might not be able to tell what it is, but it's a little seedling. All right? And when you think about a seedling, have you ever thought about just something as basic as a seedling? You take a little seed. You could take a, a pumpkin seed. Take that little pumpkin seed and it's dry. You can leave it in your counter or in your cupboard for years and years and it just sits there. Now, some seeds I know just they won't germinate after some period of time, but other seeds will last for ages. But you take that seed that's dry and does nothing and you put it in moisture or in soil and what happens? It sends out a sprout. And why is it? Why is it that that sprout, when you put it in the ground, it sends out Roots that go down and a sprout that goes up. It doesn't matter what way you put that seed in there. If it's headed the wrong direction, it naturally turns the roots downward and puts the sprout upward. Something is programmed that seed to do that. And all seeds are like that. Something has put that programming in there. And then that seed, as it, as it sprouts down and roots down there, those roots then are able to absorb nutrients from the soil. That's amazing. If you went out there today and took a handful of soil and ate it, you would probably get sick instead of getting nutrients. But that plant is able to do that because something has put it in that seedling to be able to put those roots down to absorb nutrients from the soil. And as the sprout goes up, it turns green, and the leaves are able to absorb the sunlight and the rain and to be able to grow because of what they are absorbing. And then as it grows up, depending on what kind of a seed it was, it will put out some kind of a flower. And the flowers, many plants have two flowers. Take a pumpkin, for example. You'll have the male and the female flowers in that pumpkin. And those male and female flowers are absolutely dependent upon insects to pollinate them. They can't pollinate themselves. Now, some plants are self-pollinated. I realize that. But pumpkins, I'm using as an example. And then something is programmed it so that there has to be insects, particularly bees, that go in there looking for the nectar, and they get the pollen on them, and they go into the next flower, and then it brushes off onto the next flower, and they pollinate. Something has done that. It didn't happen by accident. There was design there. And then the seed, the pollinated flower begins to grow and it produces then a, another seed or multitudes of seeds most of the time, just like the one that it began with. You take a kernel of wheat and it'll put out that wheat, wheat tassel that, and, and that, that little shaft of wheat on the top has dozens of little wheat kernels on it. The same thing with the pumpkin. You open up the pumpkin and most pumpkins have a whole bunch of seeds in them. And they will all produce more of the same. And something did that. This was a design. It was not an accident. It was not uh, some evolutionary explosion that did this. This took absolute design. And this design is evidence that there was a designer. There has to be someone greater. And it points 
us to God. And this cycle of nature is just one of scores. You can look at cells, you can look at animals, you can look at reproduction, you can look at all kinds of things that fall into the same example. There has to be a designer. Because design requires a designer. And it points us back to God. If you were to take my notes here, my notes other than the, the print that I've the highlights I put on it. The paper is made of paper. The toner was toner. But you could take the toner, you could take the paper, and you could even take the ink from the various colors that I put it on my notes. You could have that all in a pile, and, and it would never become what I've put on this paper without a designer. It requires design. You can have all the elements there, but it requires design. And so it is that all over in nature we see this, that a design requires a designer. Number two, notice with me, there the cause. This is the cause and effect. And I put a, the little picture in your bulletin there as of a, the solar system. You, this is just one example of scores of examples we've used for cause and effect. But, you know, you look at the solar system and you think, why do the, why do the, the sun and the, and the moon and the Planets and asteroids, why do they rotate um, as, they, as they go around? They rotate. They rotate counterclockwise, all except Neptune and Venus. Neptune, uh, oh, sorry, Uranus and Venus. Uranus, Uranus rolls like a stone rolling instead of spinning around clock, counterclockwise. And Venus rotates clockwise instead of counterclockwise. Kind of throws a problem into the evolutionary idea of how it all kind of spun from an explosion when you have two of them going the wrong directions. But something something caused that. What causes them to spin? What causes them to spin the same speed all the time and go around and around and have been doing that for thousands of years? Why is it that they also go in an orbit that goes around the sun? And that orbit, they stay in that orbit all the time. Why? Why don't they fly out into space? Why don't they lose their orbit? There's got to be, there's a cause there behind the effect. That cause, there has to be something causing that to happen. And that cause has got to be a powerful cause. And you've traced it back and it has to be the uncaused cause because one cause can cause another cause but we've got to have an eventually go back to the place where you say well there's got to be an uncaused cause that started it all pushes us back to God once again the third argument is that of life there's no such thing as spontaneous generation years ago scientists believed that life just came into existence. I think it was Louis Pasteur, if I remember right, was doing experiments on that to try to figure out, you know, how did life come into existence? You know, the, the bacteria and things, the bugs that would come up when you put things in a, you know, a pot and you just leave it there, and how does that happen? But 
Eventually, they came to understand there is no such thing as spontaneous generation. It doesn't just happen. Life doesn't just happen. Life comes from life. Life always comes from life. And because life comes from life, there has to be a life giver. And you could take a a human body that has just died. All the elements and chemistry are there in that body, but there's no life. Because life is gone. And there's something unique about life. Scientists have been trying for years to produce life in the test tubes. They never will. Because life comes from life. And there has to be life to produce that life. And that life that's the original life has got to be God. Number four. Instinct. Got a little picture of the birds migrating on the bullets in there. Instinct is, is in, are the inborn patterns of behavior. You know, common examples of instinct include birds building their nests. You ever wonder why different breeds of birds build their same kind of nest every time? They always build the same kind of a nest. And you'll never find that particular kind of bird building some other kind of a nest. They always build the same kind. Why? Their mom didn't sit down and say, listen, kid, this is how you do build a nest. It's instinct. And there's the, the fish of the sea. Why the, the salmon? I watched an amazing video about this sometime back of the salmon that were uh, hatched out in a hatchery way up in the mountains. And they, their, their little fish swam down to the ocean. And when they matured, they found their way all the way back to that same place in order to lay their eggs for the next generation. How? Where? Where did they get that information? Instinct is amazing. And then there's the, the bees. You, you, the little bees, when they go into the hive... People who have studied bees have come to the conclusion that those bees, they, when they find new nectar, they will do a dance in the direction where it is. And the severity of the dance tells them how far it is and the, the direction and all that. And they give exact directions as to where they found that nectar. How did they learn to do that? Instinct. God did that to them. Kangaroos. When a kangaroo has a I don't know what you call it, a little joey. The little tiny kangaroo has to crawl up into the pouch and find the nipple to be able to nurture. How did he do that? How can he do that? Instinct. God put it in them. It's amazing. We find instinct in all sorts of creatures and animals. God has directed them. This is not learned behavior. This is programmed behavior. They have been programmed. Something programmed. There has to be a programmer to be able to do that. And so once again, this is a evidence of God's activity here involved in creation. Putting that instinct in them. Number five. The moral argument. When we think of the moral argument, you know, to some degree... All men have the faculty 
called the conscience. Uh, with its constant impulses to choose between right and wrong. We don't learn that. You know, when Gerd and Aaliyah have their little babe, they're not going to sit, sit him down and say, all right, no, kid, got to teach you how to be bad. He'll learn that all by himself. It's natural. There's, but at the same time, even though we learn sin by ourselves, we also know right from wrong. That's why people say, it's not fair. You can't do that. That's not right. How do you know? Why? What makes you sure? Why are you certain that that's not right? Why can't it be right? We live in a relative world that says, I think it's right. You think it's wrong. It's your opinion, my opinion. But deep down inside, there's some things that we just know deep down inside. They're just not right. It's not right to torture babies to death. It's not right. It's not right to kill people, even if you don't like them. It's not right. You know, we know these things to be true. And it's deep down inside. You don't, have to, you, don't, you don't have to be taught these things. Even in the primitive countries, when we lived up in Papua New Guinea, there was things that they did, they knew instinctively. They knew it deep down in their heart what was right and what was wrong. And that is the, the moral argument that God has placed inside of hu- human beings an intellect and a moral nature within them that requires an intellectual and moral God to provide that. There has to be something beyond what we have here. There has to be something out there guiding this. Number six is a natural law. It's a little bit more technical. But the natural law argument is the argument from the second law of thermodynamics. Now, I'm no scientist, but I understand that the second law of thermodynamics, in just basic terms, says that things are getting worse and worse and worse, not better and better and better. Everything is degenerating. Everything is going downhill. You buy a house, you're going to have to do repairs on it one of these days. You buy a car, it's going to get rust. It's going to fall apart. It's going to quit running eventually. Things degenerate. And that is true about everything. Everything is going downhill. And the scientists know that. This is a law. They know that everything is degenerating. And yet that goes exactly opposite to what they teach us about evolution, where they say everything is getting better and better and better. It doesn't work that way. The second law of thermodynamics says that things are going downward. I want to read a quote to you from a guy named uh, Dr. Carl Wieland. He said, there, there's a universal tendency for all systems of matter and energy to run down without either pro- a programmed mechanism or intelligent action. Even open systems will tend to, uh, to, from order to disorder. So the universe had to be wound up at the beginning and could not have existed eternally. This requires some agent outside the universe to wind it up. Something had to get us started because everything is going down. And there has to be an agent outside of this world that can be able to do that. Once again, pointing us back to God. So these are six arguments. And there's many more that you could use. But these are six common ones that you could use to defend the fact that God is, exists. 
And maybe in your own heart, you may be struggling with this. You may be wrestling with this. Does, does God really exist? Does he, is he really a God? You know, we talk about God. We sing about God. We pray to God. We, we do the religious things about God. But deep down in our hearts, we've got to truly believe there is a God that exists and that I will answer to him one day. These things can help us to understand that. But now I want us to turn to three more arguments from the Bible. And I put these last because you can't use an argument for the Bible if you don't believe the Bible. And if you don't believe the Bible, it's God's word, then that's a problem. But for those who've come this far, and you say, well, yes, what's the Bible say about that? You know, when you look at the Bible, look with me at the very first words in the Bible. Turn and open, open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Look at those first words. Many of you could quote it, but take a look at it. Good for us to see it with our eyes. Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1. What does it say? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God. Now, why didn't it start out and say, well, there was something that started it all out, and they give us a long spiel about explaining who God is. It assumes that God exists. The Bible assumes that God exists. It doesn't explain God's existence. It just says there's a God. In fact, in the book of Psalms, the psalmist said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. God said, there is a God. And God, the scriptures tell us and affirm that that is an assumed assumption there, that God does exist. It's assumed. And so God challenges us with this. Psalm 90 in verse number 2. Let's turn over to that one and have a look at that. Psalm 90. Right in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 90. Another great verse here. Look at Psalm 90 and verse number 2. Okay, Psalm 90 and verse number 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, from ever little ever... From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. It says there's from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God. The scriptures assume the eternal existence of God. And so the Bible is there to help defend the existence of God by affirming that. Second notice, the Bible not only assumes God exists, but the Bible affirms that God exists. Now turn with me to a key verse over in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This is a key verse that you need to know in order to help you to understand why we believe that God exists. God tells us very clearly here in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20. Actually, we'll start with 19. Romans 1, 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God said that the invisible things of, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Creation around us is screaming out, there's a God. There's a God. God exists. 
And that's why we looked at many of these things dealing with creation already. But creation is telling us there has to be a God. There has to be a God that designed it. There has to be a God that caused it. There has to be a God that gave life. There has to be a God that uh, caused us to have a moral understanding of him. There has to be a God that put the instincts within us. There has to be a God that even created the second law of thermodynamics. There has to be a God. And he says all in nature cries out to this, to point this out to us, to help us to understand that. And he says here that, that the invisible things from him from the creation of the world have, uh, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even God's eternal power and Godhead. We can understand that there is an eternal power and we can understand that there is a Godhead that is in control of all things. We can see that in nature. Now, nature cannot tell us the way of salvation. Nature cannot explain that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So we, we can't just depend on nature. But God's saying here that nature tells us that God exists. Nature shows us that. We can see it all around us. The, from the minute details of the cells to the grand height of Mount Everest, from the unique design of every snowflake to the miracle of conception and birth. Everywhere we turn, we see God. They just, you know, to think that scientists tell us that there's never been two snowflakes just alike. That's amazing. Many of you maybe have never seen snow. I've seen lots of it. And to think that every single tiny snowflake is different. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then you look out into the universe and you see all that God has done. And the, the stars in the sky. It's amazing. God is an amazing God. God says, as a result... Man has no excuse. No excuse for not believing that he exists. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. According to science, in the estimations they say that there are approximately 200 billion trillion stars. 200 billion trillion stars. That's a number that is so big that our minds cannot grasp it. And yet the psalmist said that God knows them all by name and calls them all by name. Over 200 billion trillion stars and God knows them all. We have an amazing God. And God says, look at the sky. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Those little twinklers out there all are telling us there is a God. And one last thing, the Bible attests that God exists. The Bible itself bears marks of divine origin all throughout it. As we look at the scriptures, the Bible tells us even in Genesis chapter 1 of the creation 
of God. All that God created. And how did He create it? It says, and God said, let there be. And there was. And God said, let there be. And there was. God created all things. We read about nature in the book of Job. Some of the most interesting chapters of the Bible. You read there in Job 38 and 39. When God's speaking to Job and says, Job, where were you when I did this? And where were you when I did this? And where were you? Can you do this? Can you control that? Can you, why does the ostrich stick his head in the ground? Where were you? How did you control it? Job says, I don't know, God. I don't know all any of those answers. God's just saying, I know because I did it. I created it all. Then we find one of the most amazing prophecies in the scripture. When Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus would be born and would set Israel free. When Isaiah prophesied that, it was 200 years before Cyrus ever was born. So 200 years earlier, the nation of Judah had not even gone into captivity. They were only in captivity for 70 years. So it was 130 years before they went into captivity. Long before Cyrus was born, God called him by name and said, there's going to be a man named Cyrus that will be the king and will set my people free and let them go back to Israel. God prophesied it. And then, it's no wonder, I, 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 I can't help but see the face of Cyrus when Daniel or the uh, others that were there in Babylon opened up the scrolls and showed him right there. Your name. You would set these people free. It's no wonder Cyrus said, absolutely, let's do it. And he set them free because God had prophesied it. Another amazing prophecy, again by Isaiah. We read in Isaiah 53. He prophesied with detail the description of the crucifixion of Christ. In Isaiah 53. 700 years before Christ. And he described it so well that you cannot help but see it when he said that he bore our sins and our iniquities. It was clearly describing the Messiah paying the debt for our sin. Just as the scriptures say. We also find in the book of Revelation God's prophecies of the future. And we live in a world today where we're seeing all this come together. And we're seeing things happen that are amazing. And we're seeing things come to the place where we can expect wholeheartedly the return of the Lord at any moment. I think the thing that stands out more vividly than anything else in the book of Revelation to me, maybe it's because it took place in my lifetime. But when I was a little boy, if I read the book of Revelation, I'd read about the mark in the back of your hand or in your forehead, and I said, that's weird. I wonder how they're ever going to do that. Nobody today says that's weird. I wonder how they can do that. They say, bring your dog in. We've got to put the chip in his ear. I mean, our dogs have chips. 
And it's, it's common knowledge how it can be done today. These, these are things that are all brought to the place where God is going to bring back the, the, bring to a pass these things that he's prophesied in the book of Revelation. Not a pretty picture for those who don't know Christ. If you're here today and have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you're going to have a terrible time during the tribulation period if you survive. It's not a happy time. But those of us who know the Lord, the Lord's going to take us from this world before that happens. We'll be rescued, but we'll still watch the events take place from heaven. But the prophecies are there. Many prophecies throughout Scripture have been fulfilled. But here's one that is yet to come. We know that it'll happen. The Bible also, another evidence of, that attests to God's existence is the way that God is able to change lives. Some of you could attest to that. You say, before I came to Christ, my life was a mess. God has changed my life. Praise God. In the one of the Creation Answers books, I read this interesting illustration I'd like to share with you. Dr. Harry Ironside was a preacher of the last century. And he was challenged by an agnostic to a debate. And he said, all right, listen, I, I will debate you under one condition. He said, I will debate you if you can produce one man and one woman who have lived lives of debauchery, either in, as drunkenness or in drugs or in immorality, and agnosticism has changed their lives. And he said, I will produce a hundred for my defense, whom God has changed. And the agnostic backed out. He knew he couldn't do it. God changes lives. The scripture changes lives. And it is another evidence that God is real. And so this morning as you come, this, if you came and your, your heart was downhearted or discouraged, look at these things. This is all God telling us. He is alive and well. God exists. He exists by design. He exists by, uh, as, as an uncaused cause. He is the life giver. He is the one who puts instinct in the creatures around us. He is the one who put within us a sense of moral right and wrong. And he is the one who created the laws of thermodynamics. He is also the God that is the assumed God of the Bible because he is God and has always been. He is the only being who has always existed and never had a beginning. And he is, the Bible affirms his, his being by all of creation and by the evidences found in the scriptures. The heavens declare the glory of God. And then the, the Bible attests to God's existence in all of the prophecies and the amazing things that scripture puts forth. So this morning, I challenge you. The purpose of the message this morning was to build your faith, to strengthen you, to help you, to be able to stand and to realize, folks, we're in a battle. 
And if you've got children, you've got a big, big, big responsibility because the world around them are trying to push them into a, a, a worldview that says there is no God, there is no Bible, there is no truth, there is no reality, there isn't, you can do whatever you please and it's perfectly fine. And there's all these kind of things pushing them all the time. Every time, if you've got a television and you turn that thing on, every time you turn it on, it's going to tell you, there is no God. There is nothing. And they're cursing God and hating God and doing things that are ungodly. And it's against us. Every time we go anywhere all around us, we hear the music in the stores and the rubbish and the filth and the smut that they put in the music anymore. It's all anti-God, anti-God. Do as you please. Do as you want to. So, folks, we've got a huge job before us to train the next generation to say there is a God. There is a God that is alive and well. And he is the creator of all things. If your children are already grown, maybe you've got grandchildren. We need to work on them. Or work, try to be a blessing to other people and encourage others around you. But let's stand strong ourselves. Don't allow the world's philosophies into your mind. They're twisting you and pushing you away from God. Cling to that which is truth and right. If you're here today and have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's where it's got to start. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, the Bible is very clear. Your future is not very good. You're going to spend eternity separated from God for all eternity. That's not a happy future. Separated from God in hell will be a tormenting thing. God doesn't want that. God wants to give you life. He sent His Son to die for you, to give you eternal life, but you have to receive it. If you've never done that, I urge you to do it today. I'd be happy to talk with you, or some of our other folk would be happy to talk with you. If you'd like to talk to them, we'd love to help you.